Father, I do praise you, Lord, for the opportunity of coming together to study your word. Father, your word says that we must strive to be approved, workmen having no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. And Father, indeed, we do labor in the word, Lord, and we do love laboring in the word. Because, Father, it's your pleasant field for us. Father, I thank you because in the word of God we have joy and peace that passes all understanding. Father, you have equipped us for every circumstance that meets us in our life. We can know the peace that does pass understanding right now, Lord, in this present world. And, Father, you see the, the state the world is in. Yet you have provided us with the truth and the joy necessary to just live victorious lives for Jesus. And Father, we do want to study your word. We want to know it. But Father, we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers also. Father, we want this word to get so deep inside of us that we have assurance and so that we can build on top of that assurance and know what it is, Lord, just to have a victorious life based on these things. Father, we praise you for your word once again. And we say, Lord, you just exalt your word. Father, you just lift it up in our midst. Father, I praise you because there's never been a nation yet that has loved you and studied your word that hasn't been blessed. There's never been a group of people anywhere who have not known peace as they've lived a life for Jesus. And I praise you, Lord, because it's that peace that we are going to know manifested in our midst. And oh, Father, we bless you and praise you for everything you've done for us, everything you are to us. And we just praise you already for the blessings we're going to receive this evening, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Now, uh, so far, we have had six Bible studies dealing with the basics of salvation and tonight we're also continuing the series that we've had dealing again with the basics this you may be interested to know will be the last evening when we talk about the barrier because tonight we are finally going to demolish the barrier to recap just uh, quickly I've drawn it out here again I'm sure most of you have got this in your notes um, I, there'll be a copy up afterwards so that you can copy it down if you haven't got it. We've got a barrier. The problem we've been dealing with is that there's, there was a barrier between God and between you. And the barrier I've drawn out in six major blocks. Now these blocks are impenetrable. There is no way through them. The only way this barrier can be dealt with is by being knocked down completely. The six stones I've got in the wall are these. The top one, sin. The second one, the penalty of sin. The third one, physical birth. The fourth, the character of God. The fifth, man's good deeds. That's an interesting one. We'll be dealing with that this evening. And the last one, temporal life. And so far, if you remember, we've knocked out the first three. The wall now is only half its former height. Unfortunately, it's still enough to stop you going through to God. If you remember, sin was removed by redemption and by atonement, those two. Redemption, we were bought out of the slave market of sin. And who did it? The Lord Jesus did it. Atonement, he died for the sins of the whole world, not just for believer sins, but for the sins of every single person who has ever lived on this planet. The next one, the penalty of sin, was removed by what we call expiation. And expiation simply says that Jesus paid the penalty, which was death. He died on the cross. And therefore, you don't have to pay the penalty. It's a swap. The next one that we came to was physical birth. Now, men are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. And God is a spirit, and you can only communicate with God in the spirit. You, that's a big problem. It's answered by regeneration. The moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are born again. You spiritually come to life. And immediately you can understand things you've never understood before. Immediately, Jesus becomes real inside. Uh, the bottom three bricks are the ones we're going to demolish today. Now, we've spent a lot of time demolishing the first three. And on that basis, today, I'm going to build so that we can cover these a little more quickly. Let's begin with the first one, the character of God, the character of God. Now, of course, there are ten 
uh, major facets to the character of God. And without listing them here tonight, they include such things as sovereignty. They include such things as eternal life. Love. God is love. This is a, a characteristic of God. Absolute righteousness. He is absolutely righteous. Absolute justice. And we can carry on the list right the way down. Now, God and you cannot come together. You, as an unbeliever, can never meet God. The two are basically incompatible. Let's just take two facets and see that. First of all, the absolute righteousness of God. Uh, absolute righteousness means that there isn't even a shadow of sin anywhere near God. It means that he shines forth purity. <coughs> He's absolutely righteous. You come into the picture, and God's character says, I'm sorry, we are incompatible. The other thing is absolute justice. God is absolutely just. You come into the picture as a sinner, and God says, you have to pay for your sin. He is so just that you have to do it. It's a problem. That's the block that we've got. And the only way that God's character can be satisfied is by appeasing God. Now, of course, all religions talk about appeasing their gods. Uh, in Indonesia, on the little island of Bali, their god is a volcano. They worship a volcano. And uh, every time the volcano erupts, I, as a geographer, would say, oh, well, you see, it's due to pressure from underneath. But they say, oh, no, the gods are angry. And immediately they say, well, if he's angry, we've got to appease him. We've got to do something that will put him in a good mood. That's it. And often these uh, people from Bali, they actually go up the slopes of the volcano, which is erupting, and will start having a service on the slopes. And thousands of people from Bali have been killed by the molten lava just overtaking them. And they're trying to appease their God. Every single religion has a way of appeasing their God. Now, of course, one of the major religions of the Old Testament was the worship of Baal. Uh, Baal was a Canaanite god, and the Canaanites were dreadful. I'm not going into them tonight, but they were terrible. If uh, ever you want to name a degenerate people in the Bible, just drop the name Baal, and you can't get any lower than that. They are the lowest of the low. In fact, there are several chapters in the Bible which warn the Israelites about the Canaanites and about Baal. The worst king, by the way, that Israel ever had was Ahab. He was married to a beautiful Canaanite woman called Jezebel. And Jezebel was a priestess of Baal. And Ahab was so bad because he followed Baal. You see, he worshipped Baal. And Baal, whenever Baal got angry, the way they used to appease Baal was through human sacrifice. They used to sacrifice, not a pig, not a lamb, nothing like that. They used to just pick a person and sacrifice them. And this was what marked out Baal. In fact, they used to, just to develop it a bit, they used to sacrifice children, uh, especially. Uh, and the, the worship of Baal, they always had a statue with hands in this position, and a fire underneath, and the children were thrown down into the hands, and they were burnt alive. We, funnily enough, get one of our words for hell from Baal. Uh, the word tophet, T-O-P-H-E-T, comes from the Baal worship. The toph was a big gong that they had, and as soon as they started sacrificing people, they used to start hitting the gong. And it was such a terrible sound that the Hebrews thought that must be like hell itself. And so we get one of our words. And funnily enough, in the Third Punic War, when the Romans were attacking Carthage, the, Car the army of Carthage was small already. Yet inside the gates of Carthage, they were trying to appease Baal by slaughtering their young men. And so it goes on. This appeasement of the gods is well known. Our God is never appeased by anything you can do. You can do nothing to appease God. You know the type of thing? Of course, we don't sacrifice things. We go up and kneel down and we say, Oh God, I'll never do that again. Now, of course, God knows you well enough to know that I'm afraid you won't do it again. And if you were honest, you'd know that you'd do it again as well. But you see what you're trying to do? You're trying to appease God. You're trying to say, God, if I promise to live a good life this week, 
Will you please bless me? I'm sorry. God's character is not appeased like that. God's character is appeased through only one thing. The death of the Lord Jesus on the cross. The message is the same, but it's a different aspect. Jesus' death appeased God. God looked at Jesus' death and said, that's good enough for me. And we have a word for this appeasement. The word is propitiation. Propitiation. I've uh, got it up here. P-R-O. P-R-O. P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. Propitiation. And propitiation merely says God's character is satisfied. Now, I'm going to develop it a bit and we'll understand it. Um, could we turn to a few scriptures and, and just check it? First of all, 1 John 2.2. 2. We've had 1 John 2.2 2 before, but let's have another look at it. 1 John 2.2. 2. And if you remember, we saw this verse when we were dealing with atonement. The fact that Jesus has died for the sins of the whole world. Not for believers only. For the sins of the whole world. But notice how it begins in verse 2. And he, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. His death appeased God about our sins. God looks at you, and if you're a believer... He smiles in love. He's happy. It goes on, let's just read the last part, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And I don't have to go over that. That's on atonement. Have a look at another one. 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is a lovely one. 1 John 4 and verse 10. Herein is love, not that we love God, we ought to love God, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, God was the author of the plan of salvation. He knew you millions of years ago. Now, we've had the misfortune, or perhaps the fortune, to meet up with one another in the last year. God knew how rotten you were millions of years ago. And his plan of salvation completely covered you, absolutely. And that's love. Millions of years ago, God looked at you and said, Oh, I love you. And I've got to send Jesus, my son, to die for you. To propitiate for your sins. You see, your sins do not please me. But his death will please me and he'll cover you. That's propitiation. That's what it's all about. There we are. That's uh, 1 John 4, 10. Uh, one more. Romans 3, 25. We'll be going through Romans 3 in some detail, and Romans 4, perhaps next week. But let's just take a little bit out of it now. Romans chapter 3, and verse 25. whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. There it is. And the next verse tells you that it's only by your personally believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that your sins are covered. Jesus is the propitiation. Now, let's have another look at it. Now, to explain propitiation in a bit more detail, let's uh, take another use of the word, because exactly the same Greek word is used in another passage. And to find it, let's turn to Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 5. By the way, no one knows who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, some people say, of course, it was Paul. Uh, that is a, an estimated guess on this matter. Sometimes I think it might be Nicodemus, and at other times I wonder whether it was uh, Apollos. The answer is we just don't know. And here's why we don't know. It's not the man, it's the message that counts. It doesn't matter who wrote it. The Holy Spirit inspired it, and that's all that counts. You see, it's the message, not the man, that counts. You'll notice that in my Bible studies, I never give a bibliography at the end. You see, uh, if I did, I'd have to put the Holy Spirit. This is the Holy Spirit's truth. 
Now, I don't say, well, I'd just like to thank Sir Edward Denley for all the help his books have given me, and then I'd like to thank Grattan Guinness, and then there's Dr. Theme and Mr. Ware, of course, and then there's Pember. I don't do it. Why? It's not the man that counts, it's the message that counts. Whose truth is it? It's God's truth. The Holy Spirit has inspired the whole lot of this truth. You see, the man doesn't count at all. That's one of the reasons that we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. And here we go, Hebrews 9 and verse 5. Actually, let's begin verse 3. And here, the writer is describing how the Old Testament was pointing to Christ the whole time. And he, he describes it. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, as we know it, the holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. He says this is such a vast subject, I can't go into it in detail. But where's the word propitiation? The word propitiation is mercy seat. It's exactly the same Greek word. It's the mercy seat. And now, if we understand the mercy seat, we're going to understand something about propitiation. You see? And it's going to be as easy as that. First of all, the gospel was preached by Israel in the Old Testament. The gospel, the message that Messiah was coming to die for the sins of the people was in Israel's charge. And they preached it all over the world. They preached and they preached and they preached right the way through. Abraham began as a Gentile. He was a Chaldean. And he heard the gospel through someone and he believed on the Lord Jesus. He didn't know his name, but he believed. The gospel message has always been the same. Now, I'll be developing that theme at a later time. But men in the Old Testament and women in the Old Testament were saved in exactly the way we are saved today, by believing in the Lord Jesus or, as they put it, believing in the Messiah, or believing in the one who was to come to die for the sins of the people. And we've got to remember that the people of the Old Testament couldn't read. Most of them had no knowledge of reading whatsoever. So what did God do? God demonstrated salvation. Everything to do with the temple, everything to do with the tabernacle, the, the priest's garments, what the priest did, all the holy days, all the Sabbaths, all the slaying of the Lamb, they all told one message, that God has provided a way of salvation. Every time a Lamb was brought, without blemish, it represented the perfectness of Christ. And when the priest uh, killed that Lamb, it represented the death of Jesus on the cross. And all they had to do was learn about that and put their faith in it, and they were saved. There we are. And so, these things represented Jesus and the Gospel. Now, what we're dealing with here is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, what was the Ark of the Covenant? It was a box. A box. Made out of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Now, it was beautiful. And this, to us, speaks of Jesus. Now, the wood would be his humanity. That We've talked about this before. Overlaid with gold, that's his divinity. You see, the beautiful picture of the gold and the wood. What was inside the Ark? Three things were inside the Ark. First of all, there were the tablets of the law. The second thing was the rod of Aaron, which budded. And the last thing was a golden pot of manna. And these cannot be seen, they're inside the Ark. Now what do they represent? They represent man as a rejecter of God. The tablets have the Ten Commandments written on. Now the Ten Commandments were given to prove to man that he couldn't be righteous by himself. Now that's a laugh, isn't it? Because many people tried to keep the law. They tried to obey the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were given to prove that man couldn't keep the law. And therefore he had to have faith in God. You see? And those tablets are in Christ. Uh, in the Ark, which represents Christ. The fact that we break the law are what the tablets represent. The next thing, the rod of Aaron that budded. This shows that we reject God's authority. The fact that Aaron's rod budded showed that he, God, had chosen Aaron to lead his people. 
and that's in there as well. And the, the manna represents the fact that the people do not take the provision of God. They try and make their own provision. And notice where these things are. They're in the ark. Your sin is in Christ. It's hidden. That's what it means. And these things were never seen. Never seen. They weren't ever revealed. Your sin is completely in Christ and it's no one's business to have a look at it. It's covered. You see, it represents Christ. Now, over the top of this Ark of the Covenant, there was what was called the mercy seat. And we'll read about it in um, Exodus 25. If you just turn to Exodus 25, I think it begins at verse 17. Exodus 25, beginning verse 17. It was God that gave the instructions on how to build all of this. And the instructions were followed absolutely to the last dot. Exodus 25, 17. And thou shalt make a mercy seat. Propitiation. It's the same thing to us. And the mercy seat represents propitiation. You see, that was its position in the tabernacle or in the temple. It represented propitiation, God's character satisfied. Let's have a look. Thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims. Now it's interesting uh, that they've got cherubims there, because in Hebrew, I am is plural. It shouldn't be two cherubims. That's like saying two cherubses. You see? It's two cherubim. You don't need the S on the end. Cherubim is plural. You should make two cherubim. Now, the cherubim, I, I always imagine them as being like angels. You see? Being like angels. You should make two cherubim of gold, of beaten work, shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. Now, let's just recap for a moment. You've got the Ark of the Covenant, then you've got a thick slab of gold, which is the mercy seat, and on top of the mercy seat, you've got these two cherub cherubim, right? And their wings actually touching and they're facing one another. They're both looking at one another, and their wings go right over the mercy seat. And this is all in pure gold. You can imagine how fantastic this was. Uh, and make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end, even of the mercy seat, shall, she, shall ye make the cherubim on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. Now, whenever you see cherubim, something is being guarded. You remember what happened when the Garden of Eden was closed down? Remember? And they were cast out. Two cherubim were put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. They protect something. And the cherubim here protect the holiness of God. The holiness of God are two factors. His absolute righteousness and his absolute justice. And I like to imagine one of these cherubim representing the absolute righteousness of God, and the other one representing the absolute justice of God. So you've got the mercy seat, on one end the righteousness, on the other end the, just, the justice of God. And they're both looking down at the mercy seat. You see? Now that's the picture that we've got. Now let's read on. Uh, and thou shalt put the mercy seat above, upon the ark, and in the ark... Thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And here's verse 22. This is very important. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. God was going to stand between the cherubim on the mercy seat, and he was going to commune, you see. On one day a year, the high priest used to go through the veil. No one was allowed into the Holy of Holies except the high priest on this one day. And he went through the veil and he was carrying a pot of blood. And he took the blood and he sprinkled it on top of the mercy seat. He sprinkled it. And absolute righteousness looked down and said, I'm satisfied. Absolute justice looked down and said, I'm satisfied. And do you know what happened? The Shekinah glory used to grow in the middle. God's presence came down on top of the mercy seat to show that he was absolutely satisfied. By the way, the people outside couldn't see what was going on. The only time they saw all these things were when 
the whole thing was dismantled and they had to move on. And then there were special tribes who used to come along and dismantle it all. And they used to say, by the way, this is the brazen, or- this is the brazen altar. And this is the mercy seat. And this is the Ark of the Covenant. And right along the priest's garments there were bells. And the people used to stand outside and they used to listen to the tinkle. Because, you see, if that tinkle stopped, it meant that God had not accepted the blood. And therefore the high priest had been slain. And that was it. And you know, they used to listen, tinkle, 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 and the blood was sprinkled, and it used to cause this sound of bells all the time, all the time, this sound of bells, like our rejoicing, all the time going on. Rejoice always, you see. Why could the bells keep making their noise? Because propitiation had occurred. Because the blood was satisfactory to God. That's enough to keep me joyful all the day long. And you know, it's so thrilling, isn't it? We don't need bells on our garments. We've got our mouths and we can praise the Lord. Now that's what propitiation is. Propitiation is the Shekinah glory appearing over the mercy seat. God saying, I accept the work of Jesus and I'm happy. Well, it's another barrier gone. Another block has gone. Propitiation means that the character of God has been satisfied. Uh, there's one phrase I love in the Psalms that puts it so neatly. Should we just quickly turn to it? Psalm 85, verse 10. Because to me, this represents the work that was done on the mercy seat. Psalm 85, verse 10. And this is what I think happened on the mercy seat. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And to me, that's propitiation. That's what happened on the mercy seat. Praise the Lord. So you see, don't fear the character of God. Don't think that one day you will stand in his presence and just have to melt away because he's so fantastic. You'll be covered by a wonderful screen of the blood of Jesus. And God will say, good, faithful servant, come up here. You don't have to be ashamed because Jesus has died for you. Marvellous. Well, that's another one gone. Super. Only two to go. And that's it. Finished. Let's go on to the next one. Now, this is an interesting one. Man's good deeds. Now, most people here understand, I think, the dilemma between good and evil. Most people here would say that there is good and there is evil and they're anti one another. This brick has nothing to do with that. This brick says there's one type of good and there's another type of good and they clash with one another. That's what this brick says. This brick says that God is so good that your little bit of good doesn't match up very much to it, you see. Let's put it in another way. Most of us would recognise certain people that we would say are good. We would probably, at our place of work, say, oh, well, I like so-and-so. So-and-so pleases me. There are certain qualities about so-and-so that I like. Perhaps a sense of humour is one of the qualities you like in a person. And you say, oh, I really like so-and-so because they've got such a super sense of humour. However, you might not like a sense of humour. You might find a sense of humour extremely annoying. And so I would say about a person, oh, I think he's, he's good. <coughs> you would say, oh, no, I don't, I don't like him so much. And we have categories. We have a decision-making machine inside that says, I like him a lot. I like him quite a bit. I like him, well, so-so. I don't like him at all, you see. And we say, so-and-so is good, the other person I don't like particularly. And we carry on and we compare one another and we go around making these decisions all over. It's rather interesting, actually, because I can say this, that on that basis, most of the atheists and the humanists that I knew before I was saved led better lives than most Christians that I know. That's a surprising statement. You think of it sometime. Uh, The people I met in Oxfam, on the Oxfam committee, I found they were fantastic. They would lay down their lives for Oxfam. Whereas Christians have great trouble laying down their lives for the Lord Jesus. You see? And I have found, basically, that uh, atheists and non-Christians, sometimes non-Christians, certainly humanists, are better than believers in their lives. Now, it's not really surprising when you consider this. When an unbeliever becomes saved, he suddenly acquires some terrible enemies, you see. Unbelievers have very simple lives. They live in this world perfectly happily. The moment you're saved, 
The world is your enemy. You see, you are completely at odds with the things that the world represents. And it's hard. Immediately, your flesh starts playing you up. You never really had a problem with your flesh until you were saved. Then all of a sudden, it's problem, problem all the way. Have you noticed this is true over the baptism of the Spirit? You don't seem to have any spiritual problems till you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then they all come to the surface, you see. And then, the last enemy, the devil. The devil doesn't mind having unbelievers around. In fact, he quite enjoys it. But he's your arch enemy. There are some believers who will quite readily put up with the devil, but I've got news for you. The devil will never put up with you, <laughs> you see. He is your arch enemy, and he hates you. He hates you. The world hates you. Now, we as believers, then, have a much more difficult time than unbelievers. You see, an unbeliever, if he's, he, if he's got a bad characteristic, he can always hide it, you see. He can always push it under. It never has to come to the surface, you see. You can't do that with Christians. Because we love one another so much, you see. And the Holy Spirit inside makes sure that these, these areas have to be dealt with. So it's hard for believers to live lives that the world would call absolutely fantastic. But the Holy Spirit's presence inside gains control. And it's not long before the, the Shekinah glory of God in you starts shining forth. It's not you that's great. It's the Holy Spirit in you that's fantastic, you see. But there's the problem. And good deeds, as far as man is concerned, never, ever, ever approach God. Because, you see, it's not how you get on with me that counts. It's how you get on with God that counts. To me, you might be utterly acceptable for the whole of eternity. But I'm afraid I will never get you into heaven. It's impossible. As Romans 3.23 says, you see, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Most of you have not come short of my glory. Most of you match up pretty well to my glory. Some of you are ahead, some are perhaps a little behind, you see. But the moment the glory of God appears, dear, you see, you just fade into insignificance. That's it. Um, let's have a look at it in Isaiah. Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64. And verse 6, because we'll see the problem. <coughs> Isaiah 64, and verse 6. And this is very important. Isaiah 64, and verse 6. But we are all as an unrighteous thing. We're all as an unrighteous thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Your good deeds are as filthy rags to God. And can you see the obvious analogy? <laughs> the more good deeds you've got, the more dirty rags you have, as far as God is concerned. And that's the barrier, you see. That's the barrier. Your sin cuts you off from God, and now your good deeds cut you off, because they're filthy as far as God is concerned. So there's nothing you can do. You are helpless in this situation. Your sin cuts you off from God, and so you say, Oh, right, well, I'll work for my salvation. I'll try and get there by doing lots of good. It's filthy rags. And you're trying to reach heaven through filthy rags. And I'm afraid you can't, because God's absolute righteousness comes along and says, It can't compare. You fade out of the picture. You see, well, it's a problem. And that's the brick. The brick is that the harder you work trying to be good, the bigger the barrier is between you and God. Because all you're doing is building up, building up filthy rags one on top of the other. And God must look down at some people who say, well, as long as you live a good life, you'll be all right. He must look down and say, absolutely not. Acts 4, verse 12. No, don't turn to it. Acts 4, verse 12. We know it already. We've dealt with it. It says, for there is salvation in none other. For there is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved but the name of Jesus. You see, it's not your good deeds. It's believing on the Lord Jesus Christ that gets you into heaven. Right, how's God going to solve it? Here's the brick, and it's a big one. You see what it says? The more good deeds you do, the bigger the block becomes. You never got to heaven through good deeds. It's solved through a little word here, imputation. I M P U T. A-T-I-O-N. It's solved through imputation. And I'm giving you these words uh, 
simply because some people use these words to try and pull the wool over believers' eyes. They just mention a word, imputation, and they use it to cover ignorance underneath, you see. What does imputation mean? It's an old accountancy term, Dennis. It's an old Greek word used in accountancy. And all it means is adding something on the credit side. Now, in accountancy, uh, you have the debits and the credits. An imputation says you come along and you add something on the credit. That's all. Now, to help us understand this a bit more, I've actually drawn out an accountancy sheet. There's Jesus and there's me. There it is, you see. And I think this will show you the problem of man's good deeds. First of all, let's have a look at Jesus. Debit, well, he hasn't got no sin nature, and he never committed any sins, so he doesn't have any debits. That's super. Any bank manager would love to have him as a client. On the credit side, what's he got? Well, he's God. And one of the characteristics of God is absolute righteousness. So I'm going to credit him now, absolutely correctly, with absolute righteousness. Absolute R. There he is. So he's heavily in the pink, is it? The black? What do you call it? If the black, yes. Heavily in the black he is, you see. No debits and lots of credit. By the way, if you ever meet a person who doesn't believe that the Lord Jesus was God, they don't understand something, you see. He's got to be God to have absolute righteousness to his credit. And if he hasn't got absolute righteousness, I'm afraid you must begin to question your salvation a little, as you'll see in a moment. Now, have a look at me. David, first of all, I've got no sin nature. Well, that's the first list, old sin nature. And an access card will never buy you out of an old sin nature. <laughs> the next thing, I've got personal sins. These sins have come from the old sin nature, but they're debited to my account. And the next thing that you would imagine goes on the credit side, and a lot of people think does go on the credit side, but they're mistaken, are good deeds. Good deeds are as filthy rags, and I'm afraid they go on the debit side as well. So there we are, we've got good deeds. So we have three items now on the debit side of my accountancy. What about credit? I haven't got any credit, as far as God is concerned. You see the problem? No, there's the problem, you see. And the only way you can have fellowship with God is to have a righteousness equal with that of God. You can't just have a little bit of righteousness. You've got to have a righteousness equal, the absolute righteousness of God. And there's the problem. Now, what happened? Well, it's quite simple. In fact, it's as easy as this. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which we've had before. 2 Corinthians 5.21 solves the problem. We'll identify these pronouns before we move on so that we know what's happening. Verse 21. For he, who's that? That's God the Father. God the Father is the author of eternal life. He's the author of the plan. For God the Father made him Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. Do you see what's happened? God the Father has taken our debits and he's put them in Jesus. Jesus' debit side. And Jesus paid for them. He died. So he got a debt and he paid the debt. That's expiation, of course. You see? So our sins were put on him. So we have now haven't got any debit. Neither has Jesus, because he's paid his debit. But unfortunately, we still don't have any credit. And to have fellowship with God, you have to have a righteousness equal to that of God. So what did God do? He imputed. He credited us with something that we didn't have before. What is it? Here it is. That we, and that, of course, tells us the purpose of the sentence, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All that happened was he transferred this absolute righteousness over to our account. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. You didn't get there through your good deeds. God, at the moment of salvation, imputed it to you. He rang up your spiritual banker and said, would you please credit absolute righteousness to his account. Therefore, you can have fellowship with God. It's as easy as that. You see? Imputation solves the whole problem as far as God is concerned. He not only took care of your sins, he gave you his righteousness. 
Now, unless you got that righteousness, you couldn't possibly have fellowship with God, because God can only meet, meet you on equal terms. And it's grace. Do you realise that? It's grace. If all your good deeds are as filthy rags, you cannot get a righteousness based on, on your own good works. Therefore, you have to just say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus and his righteousness, which he's given to me. Now, it's as easy as that, you see. Okay, uh, to demonstrate this point, and by the way, this comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe on the Lord and you get this righteousness. This has nothing to do with your, your life. All believers should produce good works. And good works in a, uh, in a believer's life are those produced by the working of the Holy Spirit out through the life of a believer. The fruit of the Spirit should become manifest, but they're the fruit of the Spirit. They're not the fruit of your flesh. For the works of the flesh, well, they're plain and manifest and they're no good, you see. We, as believers, have good deeds, but they're all produced by the Holy Spirit inside of us, coming out. You see, as we move and have our being in the Spirit. Let's have a, a little uh, look at Romans 9. And uh, I think we'll see this a bit more clearly. Romans 9. In the Old Testament, millions of Gentiles were saved. Millions upon millions were saved. Melchizedek was a Gentile. He was a Jebusite. He was not a Jew. And he ministered one day to Abraham. He was a believer. You see, it wasn't only Israel that uh, was saved. Israel preached the gospel, you see. And the Gentiles were saved. Now here we have talk of these Gentiles saved in the Old Testament. And here we come to Romans 9, verse 30. And Paul says, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Now have a look at these two groups of people, the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles knew that they couldn't keep the law. In fact, the Jews wouldn't let them. You see? They knew that they couldn't keep the law, and they didn't try. The Jews thought that by keeping the law, they were righteous. They thought that by actually doing this and doing that, and making sure you did this, and praying... Uh, seven times a day, and going to the temple three times a day, and all the other things. You became righteous. And they called it the law of righteousness. You obeyed the law and you became righteous. Notice what it says. The Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, they didn't try and obey the law, have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Even in the Old Testament, righteousness was given by faith. A big example is Abraham who believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. He was saved in just the way you're saved. It was imputed to him as righteousness. It's exactly the same thing, you see. We'll be dealing with him later on. Verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness. Now, could I just correct the translation here? Um, but Israel, which followed... Now, I'm going to correct the next bit. Righteousness based on the law. But Israel, which followed righteousness based on the law, had not attained to the law of righteousness. It's a clever use of Greek. You see what they did? They followed after the law. They tried to keep the law. And because they tried to keep it, they didn't, they didn't get the righteousness. Because righteousness doesn't come through your good deeds. It comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see? They missed it. Verse 32, wherefore, why did they miss it, Paul says? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Israel tried to keep the law and they thought that would make them righteous. And he's saying, I'm afraid not. It's not true. In fact, he goes on, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offence, and whosoever believeth on him, Jesus, shall not be ashamed. That's a quotation from Isaiah. You see? They were made righteous by believing on the one who was to come, Jesus. They were not made righteous by trying to keep the law. Never, never, never. And these Jews missed it. They tried to keep the law and they didn't get there. Why not? 
Because, you see, they crunched into the block of man's good deeds. They came smacking to the side, and I'm afraid they had an accident with it. And the car stopped. Couldn't carry on. Absolute hot. They tried through their good deeds to reach God. It doesn't work. It was by faith. Even in the Old Testament, it was by faith. You see? Galatians 2.16 gives us a bit more information on it. Galatians 2.16 Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. Not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Even if you kept the whole law, which is impossible, I'm afraid it's not good enough. Uh, righteousness comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You see, none of us here could ever attempt to keep the law. The law, the first commandment was, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind. And each one of us has collapsed at that particular stand. So we go beyond it by faith in the Lord Jesus. You see, the Lord did love the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his mind, with all his strength. Everything that he had was there. And we're holy because he's holy. It's imputed to us. That's grace. He adds it up on your credit account and you look at your say it wasn't there. It wasn't there a minute ago. And all I've done is believed on the Lord Jesus and suddenly it's there in black and white. Justification then is the other salvation from this stone. Man's good deed. Justification. Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God, as Romans 5 verse 1 says, we're justified. God's righteousness justifies us in his sight. Marvellous. Therefore, no need to be ashamed. No need to be ashamed at all. We'll be dealing with the believer's sins when we come on to a Bible study on 1 John 1 9 in a few weeks' time. Well, that's another stone gone. That's the, I think that's a tricky one. That's one. It's hard for people to, to see it, you know. So the character of God is satisfied by propitiation. Man's good deeds are satisfied by imputation and then by justification. Now we've only got one left. Temporal life. Temporal life. You see, none of us live forever, naturally. None of us. And two things are necessary before we can have fellowship with God. One, you need absolute righteousness. Have you got it? Yes, you have. How do you know? 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells you that you have. You can meet God on that level, but there's another thing you need. You need eternal life. Because God is eternal life. And if you're going to have fellowship with him forever, you've got to have eternal life. You can't conk out after a hundred. <laughs> Do you see? And it's a problem. You have got to have eternal life. How do you get it? Oh, this is brilliant. The Lord, the plan of salvation is so beautiful. It's fantastic. It's taken care of every eventuality. It really has. Because the moment you believed, something happened to you. The Holy Spirit picked you up and he put you right in the middle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right in the middle. And what difference does that make? The answer is found in 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5. Eleven and twelve. When you were put in the middle of the Lord Jesus Christ, there were plenty of things in the middle with you. And you entered into them all. Which is marvellous. Here it is. 1 John 5, 11. And this is the record. That God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. There's eternal life in the Lord Jesus and the moment you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you were put in Christ Jesus. Therefore, you were put in to eternal life. That's thrilling. It's wonderful. In Christ Jesus, you have eternal life. You also have many other things in Christ Jesus as well, of course. But I'm just dealing with this one barrier tonight. Temporal life. Your temporal life means nothing. Because you are always in Christ Jesus. Your life is hid. 
right in the middle there, you see. And at the moment, you are witnesses for him on this earth. We are ambassadors for Christ. Why? Because he's a witness for you in heaven. You see, he's seated on the mercy seat, and he's telling God about how wonderful you are. He's your lawyer up there. He's representing you up there, and you're representing him down here. And the moment you die, you are unified with him, totally. You are seated with Christ in those heavenly places, in reality, at the moment you are spiritually, in reality. And so your life just continues. And eternal life is yours for the asking. All you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you receive eternal life. It really is quite as easy as that. Um, let's just turn back, shall we, to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's see something else. 2 Corinthians 5.21. We've dealt with other passages in 2 Corinthians, if you remember, when we were on atonement and redemption and expiation and so on. Verse 21, For he, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There it is. That's our position in Christ. The last, the last barrier, temporal life, is replaced by eternal life in Christ and is removed by our position in Christ. Well, we haven't got a barrier anymore. There is no barrier. You see, the work of Jesus on the cross was so complete that there isn't any barrier for any person on this earth now. Except Jesus. Jesus said, and I read this at the beginning, in John 14:6, No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if you remember, Jacob had a vision, he had a dream, of a ladder going from earth into heaven and the angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And what were the words of Jesus to Nathaniel? He said, You shall see the Son of Man with angels ascending and descending on him. He is the ladder between us and heaven. There is no barrier now at all. But in order to get to heaven, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way that a man must be saved but by belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. The removal of the barrier is what the Bible calls reconciliation. There was a barrier, a bulldozer's come along, bulldozed it down, and the two sides are now reconciled through Jesus. Through Jesus. And we have the message of reconciliation. It's the gospel message. It says, Jesus died for your sins. Every one of your sins has ta been taken on the cross. It says that he died in your place. It says that you can be born again. It says that God is satisfied with you if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, please don't try and work for your salvation. For salvation only comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, you can have eternal life in his name. That's the gospel message. That's the message that Jesus came to proclaim. And that's the message that we have the great wonder being able to tell everyone. Jesus is alive because he knocked down the barrier and he's seated with Christ to represent every man who believes on him. Next week, on to the unforgivable sin. Amen.